while because I love talking. Everyone's like awkward laugh. Oh, I hope she's joking. I'm really not. Um, okay, grab your Bibles, notebooks, because note takers are, thanks Evelyn, history makers. Oh God, my paper's all bent. Okay, Philip Pullman once said that after nourishment, shelter, and companionship, stories are the most important thing in the world. We as humans are obsessed with stories. We're obsessed with telling stories and hearing stories. It's how we find out things about each other. It's how we uh, find out things about the world. That's what history is. It's one big story. So in order to kick off today, I thought I'd read you a bit of a story. So, page one. No, this book is a book called Don Quixote by a man named Miguel de Cervantes. This is arguably the first ever published novel. Not this copy. This was bought recently off Amazon. I bought it because um, I'm a Spanish teacher and it, this is originally written in Spanish by a, a famous Spanish author. And then it came in the post and I was like, nah, you're all right. <laughs> so I'm not going to lie, I have not read this, apart from the quote I'm going to read out today. So this book is about a man called Don Quixote who is obsessed with knights and with chivalry and with... Is Dylan Moore in today? No, so if I get this wrong, no one... I mean, you might know. Dylan definitely would know. He's obsessed with knights and with chivalry and with uh, great conquests of valor. And he decides that he's going to travel around the world trying to find out what it takes to become a knight and what it takes to become this, this valiant man. And he goes with a with a, a friend called Sancho Panza, who's going to help him find out what it is. And let me read this for you. Let me find the right place. Okay, fortune is directing our affairs even better than we could have wished. For you can see over there, good friend Sancho Panza, a place where stand 30 or more monstrous giants with whom I intend to fight a battle and whose lives I intend to take. And with the booty we shall begin to prosper for this is a just war and it is a great service to God to wipe such a wicked breed from the face of the earth. So Don Quixote saw in the distance 30 giants and he was on his horse and he had his sword and he said, I'm going to fight these and I'm going to win. And it's going to be a great battle because I'm going to wipe out some evilness, some darkness from the world. But Sancho Panza responds, what giants? He says, those giants you can see over there with the long arms. The giant's arms are almost six miles long. Skip ahead a little bit. And Don Quixote goes up and fights what were 30 giants. They turn out to be windmills. And he breaks his sword and he gets flown off into the distance. And the story is, is that he was fighting something that wasn't even there. He was fighting something that he'd imagined. He didn't take time to step back and evaluate his environment. He let other things obstruct his sight, mainly his own personal desires, his own personal quests and his position. The title of my message this afternoon is Evaluate Your Environment Strategically. Looking at how we can take a step back and start to question where we're at. But not in a critical way, not in a way that makes us judge where we are and what we've done, but makes me think, where am I? Where do I want to be? And what's maybe stopping me from getting there? So as you can tell, E-Y-E-S, we're looking at our eyes today. 
Okay, let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you uh, for you. We want to thank you that you are good all of the time. And God, I pray right now that this afternoon you would be here and you would speak. That God, these words would be yours, not mine. And that all of us would leave maybe with just one little nugget of something that you want to put into our hearts. So Father, we love you. And we pray this all would all be for the glory of your name. Amen. Okay, your eyes start to develop 14 days after conception. One of the first things to develop and uh, contain the only cells in your body that never die. Obviously, until you do, because that would be weird. Um, <laughs> but every other cell in your body dies and regenerates and becomes something different. <laughs> Probably doesn't. I, I'm not good at science. Don't quote me on this. But your eyes stay there's cells in your eyes that never die. They always stay the same. That's how important eyes are. Eyes are really, really important. In one hour, your eyes are able to process 36,000 pieces of information. So if you just look straight ahead of you now, you can see loads and loads and loads and loads of stuff. Yeah, you can see me, but within me, you can see my hair, a lot of it, which is gray, but you probably can't see that from there. You can see my face, you can see what I'm wearing, you can see the stage behind me, and 36,000 pieces of information you will process over the next hour. That's how powerful our eyes are. Proverbs 29, verse 18. In the King James Version, I know, I'm serious. It's first and last time, enjoy it while it lasts. The rest is the message from here on in. Without, oh, where there is no vision, the people perish. And then in the message, just to make it a bit easier for those of us that don't have such an intellectual brain, without, oh, if people can't see what God is doing, they'll stumble all over themselves. We will stumble over ourselves if we can't see what God is doing. The Bible tells us quite clearly, we need to know what God's doing. We need to know where we're going. In order to evaluate our environment strategically, we need to see a plan. Sometimes on a personal level. Now, I look at my life and my journey, and I look at the last 25 years of my life and then start to look at the next 25 and think, okay, where am I? Where have I come from? What's God done and what's God going to do? And how am I going to get there? And if I'm totally honest with you all, sometimes I can't see it properly. Sometimes I stand here and think, okay, I've no idea what's about to happen. I don't know what's going to happen in five, ten years' time, and it, it freaks me out a little bit. I don't know what's going to happen within my job. I don't know what's going to happen within my personal relationships. I don't know what's going to happen within my ministry. And sometimes some things get in the way of me being able to evaluate where it is I want to go. I want to see clearly. I know I do. I want my vision to be unhindered. I want my vision to be crystal clear. Because there's sometimes other people relying on my vision, because I want my life in 10 years' time to look so much different than it is now. Because I always want to be content, but I never want to be satisfied. So what's stopping me from looking forward into the future? 39 million people in this world are registered blind. Another 240 million have some sort of vision impairment. The interesting thing is that 80% of these vision impairments were avoidable in the first place or are now curable. 80% of visual impairments across the world. So I look at it from a spiritual perspective and think there's something stopping me from being able to see my vision clearly, from being able to look forward 
but I know that the chances are it was avoidable in the first place or there's now a cure. So let's go on a bit of a journey this afternoon together if you want. If not, you can go. Please don't know because that would be really sad. Um, to see maybe three things that are stopping us, stopping me from seeing my future clearly, from seeing God's plan clearly, and see if we can apply some things to our own life to avoid those spiritual visual impairments or maybe cure them if they've already happened. Three things we're looking at. And as any good preacher, my dad always taught me, three points and they all start with the same letter. Distance, darkness, distraction. Okay, distance, darkness, distraction. We're going to look at distance first. Throughout this um, sermon, we're going to look at the life of King David. Uh, really interestingly, when I first wrote this sermon, each of these three points, distance, darkness, distraction, uh, one was David, one was Gideon, and one was Jacob. Now, if anyone was here last week, they're the exact same three men that Pastor Andrew preached on. Um, I then changed it because David was more applicable to all three points, but God's definitely speaking through this um, and Pastor Andrew last week. And so let's have a look at King David and how distance maybe can get in the way of where we're going and what we're looking at. Okay, in the right conditions, humans can see the light of a candle from 14 miles away. I don't know how far away that is, maybe the Cardiff. Yeah, 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 Elizabeth nodding, Cardiff. You could see the light of a candle in the right conditions with maybe nothing else blocking the way, with no light pollution, with good eyesight, you can see a candle light from 14 miles away. But even then, sometimes for us in the spiritual and as us as human beings, it's really hard to see what God's planned for us when it is so far away. It's really hard to evaluate our environment strategically when we're longing for something that is yet to come. So for those of you, some of you know the story of David, some of you might not. He was a boy uh, who looked after sheep, the youngest in a, quite a big family. And he uh, was chosen by God and anointed by a prophet named Samuel to become king of Israel. Okay, So he was picked out of the crowd, out of all of his brothers. He was the one chosen from the tribe of Judah. You are going to become the king of Israel. Then started a 15-year wait. 15 years from when David was anointed until David became king. He was 15 years old when he was anointed and he became king at the age of 30. So why did God choose him so early? Why did God put the call on his life 15 years in advance? And how did David cope with the distance? Because sometimes it's distance that stops us from seeing clearly. I bought a house recently on my own. We're going to make it. I, uh, yeah, the whole point is, is that right now it's not a house. It is currently being built. So on the 3rd of June 2018, I signed a piece of paper that said, I want to buy this house. And at that point, it was a patch of mud. Move on 10 months. We're now in March. And I just had a letter this week telling me there's now a roof, which means the house is built. Can I live there yet? No. Have I been able to live there for the last 10 months? No, unless I wanted to live on a patch of mud, which didn't really thrill me. Have I put investment into this house? Yes, quite a lot. I've invested into this house. Have I got plans for this house already? Yep, I've already had to go and pick my interior. I've had to go and pick my kitchen cupboards. I've had to go and pick all these things, like getting an outside tap, which I don't think is necessary. My father thinks is. So I've got an outside tap. My house isn't ready, even though I know that in July it will be. 
I had to choose to make that investment 13 months previous, trust in persimmon, which might have been a really silly thing, I'll let you know in six months' time, but trust in that that house was going to be built. God sometimes calls us to stuff and he knows we're not ready. In fact, that happens often. Speaking to our young people who are with us today, woo! Oh, guys, it's okay. I love you. <laughs> um, as a young person, sometimes you feel this like, I, wanna, I can't wait to be like 21. I can't wait to be 18. I can't wait to be this age because I want to be grown up and be able to do stuff and have my own money. But God is calling you into something that you're not quite ready for yet. But be careful not to neglect the preparation time. Because in 5, 10, 15 years time, and I said this to you guys last week in youth, you're going to be an exaggerated version of who you are today. Your choice is if that's exaggerated for the good or exaggerated for the bad. And that's not just for young people. That's for all of us. We get to choose what we do in the distance. David knew that he had to transition from shepherd to king. He had to go from looking after protecting loving animals to protecting and looking after humans, which is quite a big step up. David was anointed by Samuel, as I've already said. Interestingly, that was the first of three anointings that David received. The first we find in 1 Samuel 6, verse 13, when Samuel went and anointed him. It was the anointing from God. Then in 2 Samuel 2, verse 4, we see the second anointing. This anointing was an acceptance of the people of Judah, the tribe of Judah, which was the tribe that David was from. So it's more uh, his, I mean, it's, it wasn't a close group because it was quite big, but his people, yeah? It's the tribe that then became the lineage of Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And his final uh, anointing acceptance was from the people of Israel, the whole nation, and that came in 2 Samuel 5, verse 3. After that, there was another seven years of wait. Those three anointings happened over the space of about eight years. Why, was, why is that important? David understood that character is forged in private while reputation is built in public. Character is forged in private, whereas reputation is built in public. He needed to secure his character the dictionary defines this as mental and moral qualities that makes up a person. Before he could build his reputation, defined as the general opinion held by people of people or of a thing. Character comes first before reputation comes. If someone walked into this building now and said, uh, okay, imagine that I'm not, not youth pastor. Like I've just stood up here now and said I'm done, which I'm not because I love it. Imagine someone walks in and goes, hi, I'm, I'm the new youth pastor. Would you trust them? No. Would you trust them to lead your kids? No, because you don't know them. It takes time to build the reputation and build the trust of a people. And that's what David had to do over 15 years. 1 Chronicles 11 tells the story of David's men. Just after he's become king, uh, he's really thirsty. And they say, okay, we're going to go into the enemy's camp and get you some water. So they literally risk their lives to get their king a glass of water. Now, I wouldn't do that for many people. I would only do that maybe for the people who I've seen over a long period of time who has have built my trust. And I know their reputation and I know that they wouldn't send me somewhere unless they knew I was going to be okay. Okay. 
and I wouldn't be willing to put my life on the line for them unless I knew them. This story proves that David built his character and built his reputation during those 15, life, 15 years. We see through this story that David exploited the preparation time. He took those 15 years and saw it as a chance to become the king that God was calling him to be. Because at 15 years old, as he was looking after sheep in the field, he wasn't ready to be king and he knew that. Throughout these years, David played the harp in the courts of the king at the time was Saul. He still looked after his sheep. He would go on errands for his dad to take dinner to the soldiers on the front line, as we know from the story of David and Goliath. Despite his calling, he did not neglect the small tasks. He saw a purpose in doing the small tasks, knowing that it would build up to him becoming king and him becoming king of Israel. Um, I need someone from the back. Sevi, stand up for me a second. Sorry, I'm just using you as my illustration. I don't know if you can tell. Sevi, could you do me a favor? Could you read what's written on my phone? Could you give it any kind of shot? Nothing at all. Okay, someone a bit closer. Lois, can you read what's on my phone? No, okay. John, could you read what's on my phone? <laughs> wow. Way to ruin my illustration, John. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, the best is yet to come. Now, that, that didn't matter. I mean, it's cool. It, it's true. But the point is, Sevi couldn't see it. I could see it was a picture of some kind, maybe with some sort of scribble on it. But it's the trust to know that that far away, until Sevi gets here, is preparation time is preparation for what God wants to do, to build character, to build reputation, so that when he comes ready to read the picture, people trust him. It's that preparation time that it's going to be God putting in work and us putting in work so that when we get to where he's calling us to be, we're ready and we're not doing it on the job. Distance, done. How are we doing? What time did I come up, Helen? I forgot to look. Whoops. That's all right. Yeah, something like that. Cool. Okay, darkness. In 1 Samuel 20, we see that David's life, this 15 years, hasn't been a nice rosy time of becoming a good man ready to become king. It hasn't. He's met with trial. He's met with temptation. He's met with difficulties. And 1 Samuel 20 is when it all kind of comes to a head and Saul, the current king, is really jealous of him understandably, as a human, he wasn't that close with God, Saul, and he saw a man already anointed to become king, and Saul wanted him gone. So Saul starts throwing spears at David, trying to kill him. David dodges the spears and decides, it's too much. I can't cope with the threats on my life. I can't cope with the fight. I'm going to go, actually, to the enemy's camp and see if they can help me. So David goes into the enemy's camp and quickly realizes that that's a really, really silly idea and instead runs away to a cave. So we see in 1 Samuel 21 that he goes to a cave called Adullam. Sorry if I pronounced it wrong, but I, I don't really mind if I get it wrong. Okay, scholars say that he spent three to six nights, sorry, three to six months in this cave. Three to six months uh, in a dark, cold, probably quite, at the start, quite lonely cave. Let's have a look at 1 Samuel 22. The word should come up on the screen behind me. Oh, look at that, as if by magic. 
So David got away and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and others associated with his family heard where he was, they came down and joined him. Not only that, but all who were down on their luck came around. The losers, the vagrants, whatever that word is, thank you, and misfits of all sorts. David became their leader, and there were about 400 in all. David decided to stay in a cave. He chose to sit in a dark cave, and slowly people that were like him, down on their luck, feeling not great about life, went to join him in the cave. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what the atmosphere of the cave was like, but I can't imagine it was fun and games. 400 of them, that it was known as a place that you go there when you don't really have much luck. You go there when life's not going how you want it to go. And David became their leader. Now, we have to learn something from David here because we know that David didn't stay there because we know that he became king. So what happened from him entering the cave to him being able to leave the cave? Let's have a look. What we can learn from David from this time is that he still praised God. Exactly what Sarah said when she was up here. Even in the darkness, even in the loneliness, even in the cold, damp cave, we can still praise God. God is still good. Evelyn posted me on Instagram today that said God is good even when life isn't. It's true. And so David chose to praise God. During uh, his time in the cave, he wrote quite a few of the Psalms that we read today. Let's have a look at Psalm 142. I'm reading from the message. I cry out loudly to God. Loudly I plead with God for mercy. I spill out all of my complaints before him and spell all of my troubles out in detail. As I sink in despair, my spirit ebbing away, you know how I'm feeling. Know the danger I'm in, the traps hidden in my path. Look right, look left. There's not a soul who cares what happens. I'm up against it with no exit, bereft, left alone. I cry out, God, call out, you are my last chance, my only hope for life. Oh, listen, please listen. I've never been this low. Rescue me from those who are hunting me down. I'm no match for them. Get me out of this dungeon so I can thank you in public. Your people will form a circle around me and you'll bring me showers of blessing. He cried to God to get him out of that cave. Sometimes we're so deep in our darkness, whether that be stuff people have said about us, whether that be stuff that we've done in our past, whether that be some serious hurt that we've gone through, whether that be sin that you're so caught up in that you can't get out of. Sometimes we're so low that the only thing we can possibly do is to call out to God for help. We can't get out of that cave ourselves because we've got in so deep. David took kind of like a three-step approach to this. Step number one, honesty. He was honest and said, like, God, I'm done. I'm a mess. Second step, surrender. You are my only way out. You are my only hope of life. Admitting that he couldn't do it himself. But the third step, the third step I think is often the hardest to do. He left the cave. I think sometimes it's so easy to pay lip service to our situations and evaluate my environment by saying, God, this has happened. God, I've made this decision again. God, I've ended up in the same place with the same people thinking the same things. I need you. I cannot get out of this myself. And then we stop. 
But what it takes is that final step of the process, the action in choosing to actually leave the cave. Because there was 400 people in that cave that probably wanted David to stay. That psalm said, no one understands me. 400 people in that cave and not one understood him or could help him. Because they were in the same place as him. You try and clean someone who's just as muddy as you and it gets muddier and muddier, doesn't it, when you're in a cave like that? So he had to make the decision in bravery to be the one that would step out. And when he did, he was gone. He was out of the cave. He didn't need to go back. Science was never my strong point in school, uh, as you know from earlier, like the description of the eyes. Um, but we're going to do a science experiment. Are you ready? I'm not. Helen, come here. It involves a Bunsen burner. I, got some, I should have got some goggles or something. Can you bring my coat, please? Okay, we're going to do an experiment with Helen. I've got three ball pit balls. No, it's absolutely fine. Here they are. Red, blue, and green. Three ball pit balls, okay? Now, Helen, are you ready? This is going to test you, and it's going to be embarrassing if you get it wrong. Could you say the color? Just, just, a, just a bit of background. I'm a school teacher in like quite a rowdy uh, school. This is going on podcast, but don't worry, I haven't said the name of the school. Um, and I'm used to like 35 kids shouting back at me when I'm teaching. So I like a bit, you know, participation. That's the word, interaction. <laughs> yeah, we'll do them in Spanish. Well, chuck some more in there. Okay, we got three ball pit balls. Now, Helen can tell the colour, can't she? Yeah? It's nice and light in here. She can see the colour. It's lovely. Could you put my coat on your head, like the hood on the front of your face? Now, last, last, time I, last time I preached, I had to do like a risk assessment for my illustration because I smashed a chair up to pieces. I don't have to do risk assessment today, but it might get a bit weird because I'm getting close to you. Okay, it's simple. Helen, are you ready? Yeah. Okay, what I'm going to do is put a ball inside the hood and all you need to do is tell me what color it is. Easy, right? Can you hold the mic by your face? Can you send some mic for everyone to hear? I don't know. She said, I don't know. Next one, are we ready? Yes, it's thick. I bought this to go to Sweden in the snow scene oh. at Kelly Wall. Sorry, I'm like touching your face. Can you see the colour? Okay. That's probably enough because you look really weird now. Thanks. Oh, well, well done. Okay. Let's have a look at the science behind this, because what that was was just a silly illustration. There are two types of cells in your eye. They are photoreceptor cells. The first, I know I need to slow down because I'm impressing myself here. The first is called a cone, and the second is called a rod. Two types of photoreceptor that let the light into your eyes, okay, and let you see. Cone cells allow you to see color. Rod cells allow you to see in grayscale. Now, you might not have thought of this before. When it's dark, you cannot see color. You can't. You can see things. You can't see what color it is. They might be a light shade of gray or a dark shade of gray, but you cannot see color. Tonight, give it a try. I <laughs> just, I'm going to be totally honest and vulnerable in front of you all right now. Yesterday, I wanted to test this, and I was like home alone. 
So I was putting my face inside of a jumper like this and then holding stuff in front of my face. I was I probably did it way too long because I was really <laughs> I was really into it. Um Thanks. You know, if if I'm not honest, how can you trust me? How can you know me? This is why people think I'm weird. Um, okay. When we're in darkness, we can't see color, was the, the moral of that story. When we live in darkness with our eyesight clouded by low light, we don't see the vibrancy of life. We don't see the good things that God is doing. We don't get to see the rainbows of promise because it is physically impossible. And don't let anyone tell you that you can. You can't. In darkness, you can't see the full spectrum of what that environment could be. When David was in that cave, it was impossible for him to evaluate his environment strategically. He evaluated it through a lens of grayscale. He evaluated it through a, a dark lens of black and white that said there is no color. There is no bright, colorful flowers. There is no blues and greens and reds and pinks. It's just gray. In order to see the full spectrum of color, he had to get out of the cave. You can, you can evaluate, evaluate your environment strategically when you're in a cave. You can. But it won't be the full spectrum. It won't be the full color. You see this weird, murky existence of grayscale. 80% of our memories are determined by what we see. 80%. So church, the maths is simple. The longer we stay in a cave, the more darkness we'll remember. Because if I stay in that cave for months and months on end because of that one mistake I made six months ago, and if I stay in that cave because once someone told me that your confidence is just a, a show for actually being super insecure, if I stay in a cave because of decisions I've made that have led to me maybe being not as happy as the world says I should be, the longer I stay there, when I finally get out, 80% of what I remember will be darkness. 80% of what I remember will be through grayscale because I can't see color in a cave. So when we take that decision to get out, the earlier the better. We don't live lives where we get to stay clear of darkness 100% of the time. It's the world we live in. But you have the choice and I have the choice to say enough is enough. I want to see in color. I want to see the full vibrancy of what God's given us. I want to see the colors. I want to see the full spectrum of my environment. Final point. You're impressed, aren't you? Distraction. I love you. Right, I now like, like being in this church. Um... I'm looking forward to our new building as well, but I like it. Do you know why my favorite thing about being in this church now is that we get to hear the kids downstairs. Isn't that awesome? Props to our kids team because you guys do an awesome job and it's nice to hear them having fun. If you want to have fun rather than listen to the sermon, so sign up to the kids team. Nice little plug. Tell Claire I did that one. <coughs> yeah, do it because... It would be nice. Okay, uh, distraction. So how do we deal with distraction? How do we deal when things maybe take our focus off of this future? Because what we've got now is we've got our need to evaluate our environment strategically. We need to have a look to what God's doing. We know it, 
some of those things will be far away because he needs a preparation time. We know sometimes being in darkness allows us to, to see that in the wrong kind of color. So we need to step out of the cave. But what happens when we get distracted? We're going to read 2 Samuel 11, verse 1 to 5. And I'm reading from, I think, the NIV. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joe about with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. She was, pure in her, she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness, which means she just finished her period. And then she came back home. The woman conceived and then sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. Uh-oh. We've now got David, the king of Israel, that's been anointed by God, accepted by the tribe of Judah, accepted by the Israelites. People would lay down their lives because they trust his reputation, making a bit of a serious mistake. He's seen a woman, thought, she's pretty. He asks about her, finds out that she is the wife of one of his most faithful soldiers and says, I'm going to sleep with her. So she comes to the palace. They have sex. She gets, he, uh, she gets pregnant. He doesn't get pregnant. Told you science wasn't a strong point. <laughs> ah, she gets pregnant. Uh, and then he's like, oh, what do I do now? So he then tries to figure out a plan to cover it up. That's his first thought. How can I cover up the sin? How can I cover it up? So he brings Uriah home from battle. And he's like, right, if Uriah comes home from battle, maybe he can sleep with her and they can think it's his kid. Fine. Uriah is so faithful that he refuses to even go into the wife's house. He stays in the palace. So David's like, oh, no, there's no way out of this. I'm going to have to kill Uriah. This tiny tiny, tiny thing grows and grows and grows into him sleeping with another man's wife, knowing who, he was, who she was, trying to cover it up and then killing the man. David was distracted. I think it starts from the fact that he wasn't where he should have been. In the spring at the time when kings go off to war, dot, 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 but David remained in Jerusalem. His calling that he'd been working up for for 15 years. By this point, he'd been king for 20. He wasn't doing the very thing God called him to do. And be careful, church, and I'm speaking to myself more than anything. When you're in ministry and when you're at the place that you think, I've arrived at my calling, don't get lazy. Don't take your foot off the gas because at any point, sin can just come and take you. In one uh, version, it says, he saw her, she was beautiful to behold. Two types of looking. One, he saw her, you can't help what you see. Uh, you can and if you go somewhere and that you shouldn't go and look at things you shouldn't look at. But something could come into my vision, I can't stop that. What I can stop is choosing to look and stare at it, which is what David did. He was distracted 
from his calling. And therefore, he was unable to evaluate his environment strategically because his eyes were suddenly fixed on the distraction. What are your eyes fixed on? Are they fixed on the calling or are they fixed on something nice and pretty that's come into the picture and stolen your attention? We're going to play a quick video to show this. This is my buddy, Brian. To test your spatial awareness. Meet the Brain Games Double Dutch Team. Picking 12 of you to come up. Now, what does jumping rope have to do with the brain? Well, double dutch requires off-the-chart spatial awareness. And today, these kids are going to help us test yours. For this game, all you have to do is keep track of the number of times that either of the girls in green jumps. You'll count each time one of them lands a jump, like this. One, two, three, four, five. As you can see, these jumpers are pretty quick on their feet, so you're going to have to pay attention to keep up. When the whistle blows, start counting. Ready? Go. How many jumps did the green team make? Did you say 38? If so, you agreed with 40% of our test audience. Now, some of you may be on to us, but for those of you who aren't, did you happen to notice anything else going on during the double dutch? Maybe a giant chicken strolling right through the middle of the set and doing a funky chicken dance? Now, some of you may have missed that funky chicken, but many of you probably saw it, and that's okay because the chicken was just there to distract you too. Here's the real question. What color was the wall behind the double dutch game? Here's a hint. It wasn't the same color at the end as it was when they started jumping. The back wall was changing color the entire time, from bright blue to bright red. Nearly everyone misses it, but why? It turns out there's far too much information coming. Awesome, we don't care about the science. <laughs> it's just a cool video. Your attention was fixed on one thing, the jumping up and down. Now, that's a really, really old experiment dating back years and years and years. Uh, you've probably seen it where it's basketball passes instead and you have to watch the one team and like a moonwalking gorilla comes in or something. That was my moonwalk. You missed it. Um, but your attention was fixed on one thing and you couldn't see anything else because you were distracted from everything else because your eyesight was fixed on the jump in. The University of Illinois carried out a study to have a look at the effects that distraction has on eyesight and on the focus of humans. Professor Arthur F. Kramer said this, the immediate effect of distraction is rather small if viewed individually. However, when you consider the number of eye movements we make in a day, it adds up quickly both in terms of lost time and missed information. They basically did this test where it was on a computer screen and they were meant to look at one of these gray circles and then a, a letter would appear in a different circle and they had to say the letter. But what they did was they slowly changed the color of some of the circles and that tiny subtle change diverted their eyesight 
for you couldn't have even timed how long it was. It was a really quick diversion. But what this professor is saying is that that millisecond didn't really mean anything. But over the course of the day, in one hour, when you have 36,000 pieces of information being processed by your eyes, those tiny milliseconds added up to humans missing really important information and being distracted. We need to be careful when trying to evaluate where we're at, when evaluating our environment, that we're doing it strategically so our eyes are focused on God and his promises and we're not being distracted. Because one distraction is nothing. Ten distractions? A hundred distractions? A thousand distractions? They add up to us losing time and information. The findings of the uh, research says this. Surprisingly... The subjects were almost always unaware that they'd even looked at a new object. This suggests that environmental factors can capture our attention without our awareness. Now, that's scary, isn't it? They were looking at stuff, and they didn't even know what they were looking at. They didn't know that they'd looked away. They didn't know that they'd been distracted. So David is in this place. He's been distracted from his role as king probably because of laziness. One chapter reads that he was taking a nap in the middle of the day and wakes up. He's been distracted from his role, as, uh, role of king because he's not at war. Then he gets distracted by Bathsheba bathing on the roof. Then he gets distracted by trying to pursue who she is. And then he sleeps with her and gets distracted by this whole web of lies. And suddenly, he's a mess. So how did he get back on track? What can we learn from David? A man named Nathan comes along. Now, Nathan was uh, one of the court prophets, so he spent a lot of time with David. David actually goes on to name one of his children, Nathan. So he held him in quite high esteem. Um, you wouldn't name your kid after someone that you didn't like. I don't think. No, I've, not, I've not had one, so. But Nathan comes along, and what Nathan does, we read his story in, in wait, can you go back a second? Because I'm going to prep prep the verse, you know. We read a story in 2 Samuel 12, and verse 1 to 7 is this story that Nathan tells David. Nathan goes to David, and note that he doesn't go in and say, mate, what have you done? You're caught in this web of deceit. You've killed a man because you've got his married wife pregnant. He doesn't go in and, and just start challenging him straight away. He goes in, and he tells him a story, because we know that humans love stories. He tells him a story of sheep because he knows that he's a shepherd. Nathan knows him very carefully, he uses a story that's going to relate to him. And the story, you can go ahead and read it if you want in, in 2 Samuel verse 1 to, sorry, 2 Samuel 12 verse 1 to 7. But we're going to pick it up in, in verse 7. Because what, he's, what he does is tells him a story of how this, this man kind of steals a lamb when he's already got his own sheep. And David's like, oh, that's horrible. Oh, I can't believe that he'd do that. Blah, blah, blah. Read the story. It's quite cool. Verse 7, Nathan then turns to him and says, you're that man. Here's what God, the God of Israel, has, has to say to you. I made you king over Israel. I freed you from the fist of Saul. I gave you your master's daughter and other wives to have and to hold. I gave you both Israel and Judah. And if that hadn't been enough, I, have gladly I, sorry, I would have gladly thrown in much more. So why have you treated the word of God with brazen contempt? doing this great evil. You murdered Uriah the Hittite and took his wife as your wife. 
Worse, you killed him with an Ammonite sword. And now, because you treated God with such contempt and took Uriah the Hittite's wife as your wife, killing the mother, sorry, killing and murder will continually plague your family. This is God speaking, remember. I'll make trouble for you out of your own family. I'll take wives from right out in front of you and give them to some neighbor and he'll go to bed with them openly. You did your deed in secret. I'm going to do mine. The whole country is watching. And David confessed to Nathan and said, I've sinned against God. But Nathan then pronounced, yeah, but that's not the last word. God forgives your sin and you won't die for it. How did he get out from the distraction? How did he get his focus back on God? From a faithful friend coming to him and calling him out. In his own way, in his own context, he met him where he was at. Community, when done properly, gets us back on track and removes distractions. Who's helping you evaluate your environment strategically? It's a really hard job to do by yourself. I know one of the things I always get caught up in is I'm way too busy to make any kind of time for myself and I like will just burn out like once a half term generally. My good friend and third grandmother, Carol O'Neill, will say to me when I come to church, Mim, you look terrible. Mim, you look tired. Are you looking after yourself? And that is Christian community. That is Carol making sure that she's way more interested in just, hey, how are you? She cares about me to a level that she knows when I'm not okay. And she'll meet me where I'm at. The best friends I have in my life are the ones that don't just say everything's great in my life, but who challenge me and say, Mim, like last week you said something and it's really not sat right with me. Or Mim, have you done this and this and this that you said you were going to do at the start of the year? Friends that challenge me to be a better version of myself. Friends that challenge me like Nathan walked into the court of the palace, into the king and tell him a story that he would have really understood and then says, mate, that's you. And helped him bring him back out of that pit of despair, bring him back into a place where he could serve God faithfully. Who's helping you evaluate your environment strategically? See, in order to see where I'm going, I need to do that. I need to evaluate my environment strategically. I'm not going to evaluate your environment because it's not going to help me. I'm not just going to gaze at mine and look away again. I'm really going to evaluate it, ask myself what's going well, what's not. What can I do? Where am I? I need to use my eyes, my E-Y-E-S. So what do I need to avoid? These, these are the conclusions that I came to. Now, these might apply to you. They might not. The reason why I always encourage our young people to take notes, good job, guys, is because this might not be for you today, but it might be for you in six months' time. This might not be for you today, but it might be for your best friend. This might be for you today, and it might be for you in six months' time, and it might be for you in 12 months' time. So here's my top tips for being able to evaluate my environment strategically. I need to avoid the following three things. Getting caught up in the when. David probably questioned for quite a, lot, quite a few years of those 15 years, when? When's it going to happen? 
is it going to happen next year? Is Saul going to die next year? When's it going to happen? When's it going to happen? When's it going to happen? He probably really wanted to know. And maybe God's put a call in on your life that you're going to be owning your own business. You're going to be financially stable. You're going to be the head of your company. You're going to be married. You're going to be uh, this, this, and this. And our first response is, when? 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 And that stops us from being able to look at our environment strategically. Second is staying in the comfort of the cave. I need to avoid seeing the cave as a comfort with my 400 people that are just as low as me. We can all talk about our problems. We can all cry together. It, it's, yeah, it's cold and yeah, it's kind of dark, but no one knows we're here. So we're not, we're not unsafe. We're not in danger. I need to avoid that because remember, I'm not going to see in color while I'm in that cave. And finally, I need to avoid fixing my eyes on the wrong thing. Because if I fix my eyes on the jumpers, I don't get to see the dancing chicken or the changing color of the wall. If I fix my eyes like David did on Bathsheba, and if he fixes his eyes on those little things, he takes his eyes off of his calling to become or to be king of Israel. So those are the things to avoid. But what can I do this week to make this happen? Three practical things that I'm going to try to do to allow me to evaluate my environment strategically. Number one, make a list of things that God's been doing in me so far. And then a list of five changes I want to see in the next 12 months. I read a book recently called Eat That Frog, which is a really cool book that basically says, um, it's like a quote from Mark Twain, if you have to eat a frog, eat it first thing in the morning, because like, it's not a nice thing to do. And if you have to eat two frogs, eat the ugliest one first. It's, it's the idea that uh, if you've got something horrible to do, like, just get it done. Don't, don't avoid it. Don't put it off, because it gets bigger and bigger in your own head. And it's like, oh... Just do it first thing in the morning, okay? So this book is it's a really cool book for anyone that's like interested in business or just being a better person. It's not a Christian book, but being a better person just as people. And it encourages you in the, one of the first chapters to write down 10 I am statements that in 12 minutes time you want to be true. So I did it uh, a year last October, or maybe December. Yeah, December, the end of the year. And I wrote... I am financially stable because at that point I just finished uni and I was like in my overdraft by quite a lot, just in total vulnerability. Secondly, I am the head of Spanish. Now, I wrote this as a newly qualified teacher for anyone that's in the education system. That's a stupid thing to write. I am doing my role as youth pastor well because I knew that at the time I wasn't doing it as effectively as possible. And then, sev and then seven others. Now, I can stand before you just over 12 months on, and I'm financially stable because I've just managed to buy a house. I am the head of Spanish in my school, and we're doing a better job than we were 12 months ago with youth. We've totally rebranded New Vision, and I think we're definitely in line with the spirit. All because I wrote those statements in the I am, not I will be. What can you write down today? Five things that in six months' time you can see if you've done it. And it's not just about writing a list and leaving it get dusty. It's allowing God to do something in you so those things happen. Secondly, what did David do in the cave? He cried out to God and totally surrendered to him. This stuff that all of us need to surrender to God, whether it's our own plans, whether it's uh, our talents, whether it's our, our worries, whether it's our past, whatever it may be, I know that I need to daily say, God, you are my only hope of life. 
you are my only chance out of this cave. And finally, I need to surround myself with community who help me get out of distraction. Because there's friendships who just talk to you maybe about what you're distracted by. Nathan could have gone in and been like, oh, it's a really messy situation, but just marry her and you'll be fine. But he didn't. That would have been the easy way. And sometimes it's really hard to challenge friends. But he went in and he challenged him. And so I want to surround myself with people like that. I don't want to surround myself with people that just say, yeah, 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 keep doing what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing. I want to surround myself with people that say, Mim, stop. Think about why you do that. Is what you're doing furthering the kingdom? Is what you're doing making you a better person? Are you doing it just because? Who this week can you give that permission to, to speak to you in your distraction, to speak to you in that darkness, to speak to you in that preparation time for you to evaluate your environment strategically? We're not called to do this life alone because otherwise it'd be super messy. We're called into community but don't be lulled into a false sense of community of people just justifying what you do. Oh, it's okay to do this because my Christian friends do it. Oh, it's okay to think like that because someone in church said it was okay to think like that. Think about who your Nathan is and get alongside him. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you that you do have a plan that you've put a call in on our lives, even if we don't know what it is, and you've got a plan laid out, whether that lasts for a couple days or a couple uh, decades, whatever it may be, you've got a plan. And God, sometimes it's really hard to see that plan. Sometimes it's really hard to see what you're going to do. And I take a step back and try and evaluate my environment strategically, and it's really hard to do because distance gets in the way and darkness clouds all the color from my eyes, and I get distracted by the things of this world. But God, you're asking us to stop. Enjoy the preparation time. Step out of that cave to see in color and surround yourself with people that are going to refocus my eyes. God, we love you. And we pray that this week, no matter what we encounter, no matter what we do, that God, we would try our best to make everything glorify you. Our thoughts, our words, our worries, everything. We just hand them all over to you and say that God, your will be done this week. We love you. And we pray these things in your name. And all God's people said.